So here we are at the last night of our time together in this particular configuration. And as we do come to the ending of our time together, it's often worthwhile to review our experience and to ask ourselves, what have, what have we learned in the same way that, uh, that I was just speaking to you earlier in terms of being a learning community. We too want to, we, we too want to learn from our experience by reviewing it. So tonight, staying embodied, staying in your body so that you're most available to yourself. Most available to yourself as we review and uh, maybe expand somewhat on what we have learned in our journey together to be able to fully receive it. This reviewing is where it becomes more real. Oh, yes, I did have some feel for that. Oh, I see where that fits in. Any small amount of this makes a huge difference. It's not that we take it all in. That's why we come back over and over again. But we take in what, is, uh, what we can as best we are able it's this attitude of learning, not how much we learn. If we're attached to how much we learn, that is a grasping, that's attachment. But if we are available to learn, that is reflecting our intention to deepen our understanding. And understanding is the first part of the Eightfold Path, this wise understanding. As uh, uh, one of my colleagues said earlier, it begins with wise understanding or we would not be here. But wise understanding keeps growing in each of us until we finally reach this point of full liberation. So the, the journey begins with understanding, understanding there's something missing in my life, there's something more. Is there not something better? It's the question than this. Is there not more meaning in this? Is there not some more skillful way to relate to my experience than this? Just small pieces of understanding. And then it ends in this full maturation of understanding. Throughout this retreat, we have made reference to this idea of choice. This idea of choice. And um, uh, in the Dancing with Life book, I, I start the whole thing with a quote from my teacher's teacher, the Venerable Ajahn Chah, and his talking about a fundamental choice that we make in our lives. And he puts it this way, Ajahn Chah, there are two kinds of suffering. Two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering, that's one kind of suffering, and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. Two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering, the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you're not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. This is a fundamental choice. I'm going to be uh, talking about choice in terms of empowerment and the relation to the Four Noble Truths tonight. But this is the fundamental choice that we are presented with in the Buddhist tradition to choose non-suffering over suffering, which means that we will have a kind of suffering that comes from choosing non-suffering because this means that we will, as we will see in the First Noble Truth, that we have to stay present. We're required to stay present. So when we stay present, yes, we are present for the pleasant, for what we enjoy, what we value, but we're also present for what we don't like so much. You know, We're present for our inadequacies, our disappointments, our insecurities. We're present. We don't get to pick and choose being present. It doesn't work that way. So this is this fundamental choice that people that are on this path are choosing. I choose non-suffering, which means that I will go through this embodied, the theme of this retreat, this embodied awareness through all the satipatthanas, as we have done, and I'll take you through that in a moment, through all of the ways of knowing the moment, the four foundations of mindfulness, all these various ways that uh, the Buddha presented for knowing our experience of reality, that I will choose to be present for that. 
not just mentally present, but in the heart presence through this embodiment, through this embodiment. So this is, this is a choice. We began that very first evening speaking quite specifically about the body and how we were going to be working with the body. And we have, in the course of this week together, have focused a great deal on breath, which is one of the key ways that the Buddha instructs to know the body. We have have focused on posture in our sitting postures, including even a clinic on how to be in posture with more awareness, but we've also, in, in terms of the lying down meditation that, that you were invited to do, to, to come into embodiment in all the various postures, and then to come into embodiment in movement, through the qigong, through the walking meditation, through walking down to the, to the dining hall. We've asked you repeatedly, Stay in your body as you walk down to the dining hall. Stay in your body as you're going through the food line. This, this invitation to stay present through the body. It's not the only way to be present, but it is a way that is always available to us and it has all of these advantages that we have reported to over and over again. An embodied awareness, an embodied mindfulness that creates presence so that we know we're present we have a felt sense of presence and there is a kind of continuity from that so we've worked with the body in all of those ways that's the first foundation of mindfulness awareness of the body in the body the second foundation of mindfulness the vedna the awareness of the feeling tone that comes with all experience whether it's a feeling tone of pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. We have had so many opportunities in this time together to watch our own experience around pleasant or unpleasant. And we have an opportunity right now. Are your legs hurting? Does it hurt to have your legs crossed, uncrossed? Why do you cross, uncross your leg? Do you move around? Why are you moving around? It's some little nudge of pleasant or unpleasant often which we're not even conscious of. It is driving the car. This little feeling of pleasant and unpleasant registering in the body. And of course, it's easier to know the large feelings of pleasant and unpleasant. We learn to notice pleasant and unpleasant in the body in order to then be able to notice pleasant and unpleasant in all the emotions as we went through with with both Pascal and Aaron's teachings, the wonderful teachings regarding being present for the emotions, for for the the difficult emotions, and the Brahma-viharas, these very uh, uh, heavenly kinds of feelings that we can have, and then through this purification, and how purification and and, um, awareness go together. And so we we have seen the importance of Vedana. You are now equipped. Every person in here is equipped to go back to your daily life and maintain an interest in Vedana. You have the awareness of body. You understand enough. doesn't take much understanding to recognize pleasant and unpleasant. And if you do this in your daily life, you will grow in insight. You'll also become much more aware of choices you have and choices you're making. Going back to Ajahn Chah's second kind of suffering, it's sometimes not so great to see the choices we're making and why we're making them, but that is a necessary knowledge in order to make better choices. If we are not present for our mistakes, It's very hard to learn from them. Then we looked at the various states of mind after emotions. We looked at these different mind states that can can arise uh, from ordinary mind states, the more emotional mind states like anger and lust and so forth, and then the higher, more exalted mind states. We spent less time with these higher 
mind states than we might in some other retreat because it's a relatively short retreat and the, the uh, taking the time to stay embodied just requires quite a bit of time. Otherwise, it becomes so mental. Everything becomes very mental, very conceptual. We're doing our ideas of practice and not our actual experience of practice if we're not careful. So we've gone through these first three foundations of mindfulness, of the body, of feeling, of mind states. And we also, as part of, of what was done in the last few days, we've looked at that fourth foundation of mindfulness, which includes the dhammas, all the dhammas, all the, the uh, Buddhist universal truths about all of our experience. So when the Buddha first divides experience out as, okay, there's body and mind with this feeling tone connecting the two because body and mind, of course, merge together in many ways. He, when we're learning those, we're mostly just interested in feeling that, feeling each of those three. And then with the dhammas, he goes, now, there's, if when you look at all of your experiences in your body and you look at all the feeling tone experiences and you look at your mind states, you see that there's certain universal patterns or universal characteristics. And he, he, the, he's, he starts with this in terms of the hindrances of mind the various kinds of, of hindrances that come. He talks about it in terms of the sense spheres. He talks about it in, in terms of what's called the aggregates, what makes up a moment. And he talks about it in relation to the, the, the awakening factors that Aaron took us through last night. These, just like they're difficult states of mind, so are these, these uh, empowering states of mind, that the investigation and and the, the energy and the calming and the joy, all of these awakening states of mind. Each of these states of mind, both the hindrances and the awakening factors, can be known through body awareness. Thus, the entire journey can be worked with through the body. So what we were doing on this retreat is keeping us in the body enough to work with the whole sequence of the four foundations, using the body as our reference throughout. So we were equally interested in, in the Vedna feeling tone as a, as a phenomenon in itself, but we were finding it in the body. We were equally interested in the mind states, as the mind states within themselves, but we were utilizing the body in order to know those mind states. In other retreats, you will have an emphasis that's much more on the mind states themselves, but you will be so well uh, uh, prepared by being able to know them through the body in this way. We've also consciously developed a number of tools. We have emphasized the felt sense of experience rather than the conceptual cognizing of experience, rather than the, the felt sense, rather than the, the uh, theoretical, the, the mental idea of experience, our views and opinions, our interpretation of experience. We've emphasized over and over again the importance of this felt sense to our ability to have wisdom and to have all the Brahma-viharas of loving-kindness. Again, when you go home, to be interested in a continuing way is what's the felt sense of this right now? What's the felt sense of it? It can become very subtle, and particularly in relation to mind states. So the more we're uh, embodied in that, the more we'll have access to those subtle feelings of the felt sense in the mind state. We have also learned being embodied as a practice. So many times we have asked that you drop in, that you feel the presence in the body, that you have a continuity of awareness through this body experience. Again, this is something that you can do so well at home. We've also had a lot of emphasis on mindfulness as mindfulness in the present moment and using the body in order to be mindful in the present moment. The more we become established in our habit of mindfulness, then 
the body is just one more thing that can be mindful of in the moment. We don't need it once we've really learned how to stay present moment to moment in a mindfulness way. That's hard to do. You've seen how hard it is to do. It's just difficult. So we practice using this body, using the immediacy of the body, because the immediacy of the body gets us in this moment. What's true in the body right now? Likewise, what is the feeling tone right now? What is the mind state right now? But to get into that, we use this gateway of the body. I got a note that I wanted to make one clarification about. I was talking about that our mindfulness is samasati. It's wise mindfulness. It's mindfulness that is completely interwoven with the other eight the other seven factors of the eightfold path, the seven folds, the eight folds, the other seven folds of this one path that's got seven folds, seven, eight aspects of total. It, that's, this is samasati, this wise mindfulness. And I made the point that, that regular mindfulness, unlike samasati, is not ethically based. It is being present. And I use the example of a thief has mindfulness They're being very careful as they go into your living room and steal the computer off your table while you're asleep in the bedroom. That's very mindful of how much noise they're making. They're very alert in that way. They're very aware of what's present right now. As a matter of fact, uh, I've read uh, psychological studies of, of why thieves are thieves, and this is one of the rewards, is because they get such a high, and they're so high because they're so present. It's very interesting, huh? So, it, it, so mindfulness itself is, in, in, a, in, the, in, the, in a regular way, is amoral. It's not immoral. Someone had the impression I'd said it was immoral or unethical. No, it's just, it's, it's not speaking to that. But samasati, one of the major things about the Buddha's uh, teaching is it is ethically based. As a matter of fact, he starts with generosity and with with ethical behavior. That's this, this uh, what's called sila, is the ethics. Some teachers, in fact, will not, in Southeast Asia, will not teach a student mindfulness and not teach vipassana until they have uh, become convinced that the students have some feeling for this generosity and this sila. I certainly understand that. Another thing that has happened as a tool is that as best we are able, we have invited you to have an expanded perception of what is meant by body. From the very first night, we said, what is body? And various of us at various times, from again, from all of the Vipassana teachers and the Qigong teacher, we've all pointed to various ways that we can understand body that is an expanded version. And again, this is something that is very useful as you make this transition from the physical body to understanding that there is an emotional body, this body of fear, this body of wanting, this body of sorrow, this body of hopelessness. There's a body feeling to that. When we drop in in a way that we feel it as body, then the this embodiment of it allows us to work with it more effectively when it's all in our minds. We can feel so overwhelmed by these mental objects and not have any way to be grounded, not have enough presence to have uh, you know, a wise, wise understanding and wise choice in relation to it. And that certainly has included the energy body. We've also used this term compassionate awareness or loving, uh, compassionate mind, uh, sorry, compassionate awareness, com- compassionate mindfulness, or loving awareness as a way of expanding the mindfulness to include the heart qualities. That has come up for a number of you in the uh, practice discussions. This, too, is a benefit of being in the body. We're more likely to be able to feel our hearts when we're still in our bodies. When we pop out and go totally into our mental realm, it's very easy to leave the heart. And in fact, some long-term practitioners 
who are so uh, skilled in the mental area with it, they come in and they talk about, well, my practice is so dry. It just feels dry. I, it feels brittle. I don't really, I, I'm disappointed in Vipassana. And we go, no, you might want to consider the way you're practicing. And we point to the Brahma Viharas themselves and we point to this embodiment because that's where the juice is. That's where the, the moisture is in that way. We, uh, well, first I want to read you a little poem here. This is a poem called Look Around by Mark Nepo, N-E-P-O. And it has to do with staying present. Staying present. And the imperative of staying present. The body being just one way to stay present. If you try to comprehend air before breathing it, you will die. If you try to understand love before being held, you will never feel compassion. If you insist on bringing God to others before opening your very small window of life, you will never have honest friends. If you try to teach before you learn or leave before you stay, you will lose your ability to try. If you try to teach before you learn or leave before you stay, you will lose your ability to try. No matter what anyone promises, to never feel compassion, to never have honest friends, to lose your ability to try, these are desperate ways to die. A dog loves the world through its nose, a fish through its gills, a bat through its deep sense of blindness, an eagle through its glide, and a human life through its spirit. To stay, to to stay. If we leave before we stay, we miss the moment. We miss the chance to make choice. If we go to our reactive mind over and over again without staying for what's true now, we miss it. We miss it. And how often do we do that? We get out of dodge. It's too unpleasant. We don't like that feeling in our body. Our mind's agitated. We don't have any way. We, we've not sufficiently developed our tools to use one of those to stay present, to stay in the body or stay in the mind, stay somewhere. You know, We get out. We go into this, our view and opinion. We get angry. We get frustrated. We, we start to spin out in one way or another. We go into what is termed reactive mind. And so we learn to stay, to look around by staying. In this way, we have an authenticity to our lives and we're, in, we're involved with others in an authentic way, though so we have honest friends. We have the kind of compassion because we have been present and available for the human condition. The human condition. We have been willing to live through the human condition, which is a difficult condition in many ways. Thus, we will see in the Four Noble Truths. And so this is, this is the, the invitation of the mindfulness is to stay present and so easily able to do with the body. The Four Noble Truths are the very last piece of the Satipatthana Sutta, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. So after the awakening factors that Aaron did last night, the very final thing that you become mindful of, that you explore, that you open to knowledge, is the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths. So the Four Noble Truths then apply back to the body and all the different ways we've worked with body. The see, we see Vedna in the context of the Four Noble Truths. We see the mind states in the Four Noble Truths. We see all the dhammas, all the, the, the sense the things, the, the hindrances of mind, the aggregates, the awakening factors, everything in the context of the Four Noble Truths. It is the fruition of the practice. It is the final maturation, not just of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, but all the teachings. So the teachings began 
and uh, with the Four Noble Truths and end with the Four Noble Truths in various ways. The first of the Four Noble Truths, as Aaron said last night, is that there is dukkha, that there is this kind of discomfort in life. Dukkha has many, many different uh, meanings, beginning with suffering, which is the most common translation, dissatisfaction, dis-ease, dis-ease, this kind of dis-ease with conditions. We're uneasy with conditions. There's, There's this little tension, this little friction, even with good conditions because of the nature of all conditions that makes us a little uneasy. It's kind of an existential problem, actually. And it's been, it's been described as stress, by, as frustration. I was just listening to uh, uh, the, these two monks talking about the word dukkha. And they use the word bewilderment, confusion. You can also use hopelessness and sorrow. You can use a lot of different words because it's, it's, it's all dukkha. It's just dukkha. There's an unease. There's, it, doesn't, it doesn't quite fit the, the image of the squeaking wheel that, that the Buddha used. The squeaky wheel. It just, it's not running smoothly. Life doesn't, based on conditions, doesn't run smoothly because something's always going wrong. Surely you've noticed that by now, that there's something that's a little off. And even if it's feeling really good, pretty soon something starts feeling a little off. You need a little more of something or a little less or you want something new. It's just... It's just, this is the squeaky wheel of life. That's the dukkha in its broadest, broadest way. The, the, uh, there's these uh, very different aspects of dukkha that I'm not going to be going into in any large detail tonight. But it starts with what we think of as the physical and emotional pain. But then it goes to the fact that everything changes. That's dukkha. You can't ever get anything done just right. Well, I brushed my teeth. That's through for this lifetime. You know, well, that was a good meal. Don't have to waste any more time eating. There's, there's nothing that gets right. Oh, I've really, that was a great conversation I had with my significant other. We really understand each other. How long does that last? On and on and on. So, the, and then there's this uh, aspect of, dukkha where it's very hard to find the there there and like what so what am i what what am i what wh- where am i what is wh- what is my if i've got an identity what is that identity when you start looking for it it's very hard to find it that creates a great deal of unease because we think we've got to have that and so we keep grabbing at these ones um yeah, and those of you who saw a couple of you looking at emotional chaos to clarity out there, the very second chapter is just describing all the things that we're not. And it's good to just look, flip through those. It takes 30 seconds. But just to see that we're not our history. We're not our sense of responsibility. We're, we're, we're all not this and not that, not our personality, and on and on. It's always good to remember that. The instruction in the first noble truth is to stand under to know dukkha directly, to know it directly, that it is to be penetrated by this direct knowing of it, this direct understanding of it. What better way than through the body? And if we can't stay in the body, if we leave the body, very hard to stand under, to stand under in this way. When we can do that, and the mindfulness helps us stay present for the dukkha in life. We, how, do we, how do we stay with the dukkha is by the mindfulness. The mindfulness is the technique, the skillful means for staying with. Uh, one teacher uh, translates it as uh, a willingness to bear, as in the way a wagon will bear its load. It just carries its load. It may be heavy, light, maybe a rough road, a smooth road. Its, its wagonness is to bear. And so in the way, it, it, the, the invitation to us is to bear. In uh, the, the teaching of mindfulness, the sati is translated as attending to or standing near. So the standing near, standing under, bearing all point to the same things. And in just being with the first noble truth, we bring a level of liberation. 
just a small, small level of liberation. We can choose to stay present. That is an empowerment. This is what I would call the first empowerment of choice. I choose to stay present even though this is really difficult. I'm not going to go to fantasy. I'm not going to tune out. I'm not going to start blaming. I'm going to really stay with the difficulty of this broken heart, with this embarrassment, with this sense of failure. I will stay present with this. Not identifying with it, but know it. Feel the truth of it, at least for a, a, a bit. This is a poem by Mary Oliver. It's called Heavy. And she's talking about uh, an ex- experience of difficulty and where someone suggests to her that she stay mindful and that it's not the difficult experience that was her problem. It was how she was relating to the difficulty of her experience. Heavy. That time, I thought I could not go any closer to grief without dying. That time, I thought I could not go any closer to grief without dying. I went closer, and I did not die. Surely God had his hand in this, as well as friends. Still, I was bent, and my laughter, as the poet said, was nowhere to be found. Then, said my friend Daniel, brave even among lions, it's not the weight you carry, but how you carry it. Books, bricks, grief, it's all in the way you embrace it, balance it, carry it, when you cannot and would not put it down. It's not the weight you carry, but how you carry it. Books, bricks, grief, it's all in the way you embrace it, balance it, carry it, when you cannot and would not put it down. So I went practicing. Have you noticed? Have you heard the laughter that comes now and again out of my startled mouth? How I linger to admire, admire, admire the things of this world that are kind and maybe also troubled. Roses in the wind, the sea geese on the steep waves, a love to which there is no reply. So this mindfulness of dukkha can have this effect just as it had for her as she was reporting in the poem. It's how we carry the difficulty that starts to allow life to come in where there's deadness, a sense of possibility to emerge when there is no possibility. It's how we carry it. And it is this embodiment that is the way that we're offering to begin to choose to stay with, to carry it. The second noble truth is that there is a cause of suffering, that it's not random. And the the statement is that the cause of suffering is the way we relate to conditions. Not the conditions themselves, but how we're relating to them. We relate to them from a reactive mind when the mind has not been trained, not been in any degree liberated. We are demanding, we're rejecting, we're fearful, we're obsessing, we're caught by the pleasant and unpleasant, we make the pleasant me and mine, we make the unpleasant me and mine, and therefore we grasp, we cling, we become attached, and we we take birth in suffering. So it's bad enough that the knee is hurting when you're sitting there, but when you make it me and my knee, then it hurts a lot more. The mind's reactive. It shouldn't be hurting. If I were more, if I were, uh, if I were younger, if I was, hadn't had this injury, da-da-da-da-da. I, I, then I could be a better meditator. We, 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 uh, we take birth in something and we create a world around it. We create a world that does not exist except in the mind. Someone uh, wrote a number of notes asking about, isn't suffering caused by the mind? Isn't the problem in the mind? Yes, the problem is caused by the mind. But the way out of the mind causing suffering may well be for you through this embodied awareness that can see what the mind does and see that there is choice in this way. Again, just as there's three kinds of dukkha, there's, there's these different kinds of 
of the clinging, the grasping, the, the wanting. It's, these, they, they're called thirst. There's different kinds of thirst. Uh, one's based around all the sense pleasures, including all of our love of planting, planning and fantasy and all that, and our judging and comparing. Have you noticed how attached you are to your judging and comparing? That's a sense desire. That's a sense desire. The second is this wanting to become something. We thirst to be something we're not. A better meditator, a, a younger, smarter, whatever it may be. And then the third kind of thirsting is not wanting to be. And so we go through these. We go through each of these. And it's difficult. It's difficult. As we do this journey, we want to see how we take each of these as birth. Birth in our sense desires. It's not the sense desires are the problem. I'm saying this again. If we take birth in our wanting to be, it's not the wanting to become that's the problem. It's our attachment. It's the reactive mind state of it, not the wanting to become. Why would you not want to be a, a, a better mother, a better st- a student, a, a better friend? It's the attachment. It's the grasping. That is the problem, not the wanting to become, but the way we're relating to it. And when we're embodied, we know that difference. Otherwise, it's kind of fuzzy in our heads. The same with not wanting to be. Why would you not want to say, I don't want to be sick? There's nothing wrong with not wanting to be sick. But if we have to not be sick, then we've created a whole realm of suffering for ourselves. The instruction, because each of the Four Noble Truths have an instruction aspect. There's a reflective aspect, an instruction aspect of actual practice, and then there's a gathering of the wisdom aspect. So there's 12 aspects to the Four Noble Truths as a practice. It's uh, described in many places. Ajahn Sumedho's little booklet, My Dance with Life, um, in the suttas themselves. So the practice aspect of of this being present for the, the grasping mind, the attached mind, is another step up from simply being present for the dukkha. Here you were just supposed to, and with the dukkha, you just feel the dukkha, you feel the ouch. That was the instruction. Penetrate the dukkha by feeling the ouch of it. But here we're being asked to do something different, which is to let go of the cause of suffering to let go of our attachment, to let go of our grasping, to let go of how we're holding on. This is a momentary letting go. Momentary. So it's not like you've got to become this great person where you can suddenly not have any grasping in your mind. But in this very moment, remember the immediacy of the Dharma that we discovered earlier that we've talked so much about? In this immediate moment, can I let go? Is that a possibility? This is the second empowerment choice. It's when we can let go. We see we do have the choice sometimes to let go. We don't know we have that choice if we're not present. If we're present, we then see, well, can I let go or not? Sometimes we can't. Okay, we start again. Start again, just like coming back to the breath. That's why the starting over with the breath has so much value. It's because we're developing a kind of patience and persistence not based on results. Because when we're based on results, then we're attached all over again. It's, it's the, the Dharma is so internally consistent that it's beautiful to a mind. It's just beautiful in that way. So in this moment, can I let go or not? I, you know, I, I'm restless. I want to move. I really want to move. I've identified with wanting to move. Can I let go of that? Well, for this moment, wow, I actually did have a choice. The importance of knowing that you had a choice and that you could choose it. It's very important to know that we did this because we're having to rewire our nervous systems. We're, we're connecting new synapses in the mind into new patterns so that we know things that we have not known just from the biological wiring in the first place. That we have a level of choice when the mind is grasping that we can choose to let loose. To the point that we can see 
the mind's getting ready to grasp because of the pleasantness of something or because of its unpleasantness and go, no, we don't even go there. That's more mature, starts in areas that are not so charged for us, but it comes this way. Another Mary Oliver poem. This is called The Uses of Sorrow. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this too was a gift. It took me years to understand that this too was a gift. This is letting go. When we let go, the gift is one of understanding. The understanding of choice, the understanding of what matters, the understanding of what's a wise way to relate to experience. There's so much wisdom in the second noble truth. As Aaron was saying last night about people rushing on to the third noble truth, there's so much liberation in these first two. The choice to stay present for the difficult so that you're no longer afraid of the difficult. You're not even afraid of of the things that you really like when you're having a a great time. You're not afraid uh, to stay with the great time even though you know it will go away. So much empowerment, so much liberation of mind, heart in the first noble truth and more still in the second noble truth. This is the awakening part of awakening in the body. Just these first two noble truths is like a full experience of the mind-heart. The third noble truth is that there is a cessation of all suffering. It's a very mysterious experience. And the easiest way to understand it is that we don't feel any greed or hatred slash slash aversion in the the body-mind and that we don't feel delusion in the body-mind. That that would be the cessation of those three. That would be the simplest understanding. There's many mysterious ways of understanding it as well, where there's a kind of knowing that is not based on, on the regular cognitive knowing that we're associated with. This is from Ajahn Mahaboa. Whatever arises has to vanish. This is the conditional world. We see that when we're embodied. Whatever arises has to vanish. Whatever is true, whatever is a natural principle in and of itself won't vanish. In other words, the pure mind won't vanish. Everything of every sort may vanish, but that which knows they're vanishing doesn't vanish. This vanishes, that vanishes, but the one which knows that vanishing doesn't vanish. Whether or not we try to leave it untouched, it keeps on knowing. This knowing, this awareness, this some of you express so much interest in what is the nature of awareness. This, the nature of awareness is this knowing that does not vanish. This is part of what we see in this third noble truth of the cessation. We cease to be dazzled by arising and passing. We cease to be caught in pleasant and unpleasant. We cease to be caught in our fears, our wanting, and we start to rest back in a knowing that is of a different quality and gives us yet a different choice still in terms of heart choice. We term that bodhicitta, this this, uh, opening of the heart to knowing in a certain way. The fourth, the fourth noble truth, of course, is the Eightfold Path. This path that leads to the end of suffering. The path that leads to the end of suffering is through the first noble truth. That's where we walk through. We start where we are in practice. If you're having a restless mind when you're sitting there on the cushion, 
You start with restless mind. Where else would you start? You're not anywhere else. You are there in restless mind. Find place to start. Mindfulness is does not have preference. It can be mindful of anything, this capacity of mindfulness. And so with the Eightfold Path, we begin our journey where we are. When we're, when we're in an exalted state of mind, that's great. When we're in a lousy state of mind, that's okay too. We're not having preference of what we're being mindful of. We relate wisely to the conditions that are present. And we learn from, uh, from all kinds of conditions. Pleasant, unpleasant, inspired, uninspired, ignorance. We can learn from it all. This is the humility of walking the Eightfold Path. So it has wisdom factors of understanding and intention. It has ethical uh, sila factors uh, of, of right speech, right livelihood, and, and right... Uh, 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 what am I forgetting there suddenly? And then, uh, then uh, right effort and, and right concentration and right mindfulness in terms of the... the um, the, the practice aspects, the samadhi aspects of it. So there's these three dimensions that are that are that are captured through those eight folds. We walk the path as best we're able. One of the key parts of walking the path is to remember that we want to walk it. It's very easy to forget that this is what we want to do in life. We've got to get all the things done on our to-do list. What about all the things people want from us? What about all the things we want from others? What do we do about that? Well, aren't I supposed to do well in life? Aren't I entitled to do well in life? Don't I deserve to be happy? Those questions are false questions in relation to walking the path. You can be making all your effort to be happy. This is how to go about being happy. It's through the Eightfold Path. If, how to get your work done, you know, how to, how to uh, seek what you want from others. Is, is we employ the Eightfold Path. So mindfulness in one sense has this root in this word smirti, this remembering. There's a remembering quality of sati. We remember. What are we remembering? We remember our intention. What is our intention? To walk the Eightfold Path. This very moment. The Eightfold Path to has an immediacy to it. We can have a goal of getting somewhere on the path. But the immediacy, the choice, because see, each of the noble truths has this choice. I choose this moment to treat this moment as dharma. Here I am, uh, very vulnerable in a relationship. Here I am with my, my teenage son or daughter who's sort of telling me how imperfect I am. I choose to treat this as a moment of dharma. This is a moment of dharma. Will I, will I love my child less? No, not at all. You would, in fact, love your child more because you'd love your child more wisely. The love would be more available to that child, more available to you. This is the choosing of the path in this way. The path is all of our lives. It is how we are moment to moment moving through our lives with moving for the goal of being able to, in a more and more complete way, choose non-suffering over suffering to the point that the, the, the tendency towards greed, hatred, and delusion come up less often with less intensity for less period of time. Over time. And that, of course, becomes the cessation. Over time. But right now, the immediacy for us is in this moment, am I choosing suffering or non-suffering? If we want to choose non-suffering, we cultivate the Eightfold Path. If we want to choose non-suffering, as, as Ajahn Mun said, we don't leave our body. In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to leave the body. Remember that from the other night? In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to leave the body. Never allow the mind to leave the body. We walk the path in an embodied way. Ordinarily in a retreat, we would not emphasize the body as much as we have here. This is a first foundation retreat. It is a retreat to bring heightened awareness to the role of body. Once you have that heightened awareness, you would study other things in other ways. We consider this uh, one of the, the, the core 
understandings, the core offerings at Spirit Rock, because it is so important for all of the other kinds of retreats we offer. And with that, we complete our time of Dharma talking about the body in this way. Tomorrow morning, we'll be talking about taking the practice home and body will come up again in that way. But in terms of Dharma, Dharma, this is it. So we, we really appreciate your time, your interest, your willingness to stay with this. And may it serve you not just here and now on this retreat, but show up over and over again through these coming days, weeks, and months as you see what it's like in relation to the body. So let's close our eyes for a moment. What's true in the body just now? Can you say to yourself, in this moment, embodiment is like this? Is that now a genuine experience for you? From this knowing of embodiment, what else is true? Just look for a moment. What else is true? Look around. Stay before you leave. In this embodied knowing, what is being known? What's known in the belly, the intuitive body? What's being known in the heart? What's being known in the head center? All can be known through this embodied awareness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.